Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. Mumbai-based Cure.ai was founded in 2016 to address the need for affordable and accessible diagnostics using deep learning technology. Cure.ai's algorithms help doctors and radiology centers be more efficient and more accurate with their diagnosis. Using machines to perform basic image interpretation tasks frees doctors to spend more time with patients, and that leads to better diagnostics, faster for the patients, and at lower costs for the healthcare provider. Here to talk about Cure's mission and the potential deep learning has to improve healthcare writ large is Dr. Pooja Rao, co-founder and head of R&D for Cure.ai. She's a doctor, she's a data scientist, she's an entrepreneur, and she's here today. Dr. Rao, thank you so much for taking the time to join the NVIDIA AI podcast. Thank you, Noah. It's my pleasure. So tell the audience about Cure.ai. You know, we have an international audience, but uh, the podcast is based, NVIDIA is based in the United States. And so folks listening in the U.S. or other places might not be familiar with some of the details of the Indian healthcare system, the healthcare system in Mumbai. So maybe you can give a little bit of background there and then kind of get into what Cure does. Oh, sure. Happy to do that. So Cure is a five-year-old company. We develop AI for medical images. So that's technology that can read your x-rays, your CT scans, your CAT scans, and your MRIs. When we started out about five years ago, people were just starting to get used to the idea that deep learning or computers can read images. So they can identify objects in your Google photo albums and so on. And so we thought, why not apply that to medical images, right? And here's the bigger picture of what we're solving. Uh, We all know that not everybody has equal access to high quality diagnosis and care. But why is it really in such short supply and why is it so expensive? It's partly because we have doctors, specialized doctors called radiologists, who train for, say, 10 years or even more in order to be able to read these X-rays, CTs, and MRI scans. So that's a really high level of expertise. Every time these doctors go on vacation or if they retire after uh, after they finish their careers, all of that training is lost forever. So that's an extremely valuable resource. Imagine if we could train AI to read these medical images, right? We could then deploy it at scale um, and it would keep getting better and better as it as it saw more images. So we had this we thought we had this amazing opportunity where technology can help make diagnostics more equitable and um, more affordable, right, with the power of deep learning. And that was really the audacious goal um, when we started out. And I think we're close to getting there. But today we have imaging products in two areas. We have chest or pulmonary AI, and then we have brain or neurology AI. We just received our first US FDA clearance last year. And as of today, the technology is used at over 150 healthcare facilities in 27 countries. And um, we've also learned a whole lot um, along the way. And so to your your point, the way you set this up, which is is great for the uninitiated listening, as far as the the deep learning systems concerned, the computers concerned, there's no difference between trying to pick my younger son's face out of my Google Photos library and looking for you know specific uh, bits of imagery in a medical scan. But I would imagine that there are some differences, some important differences, uh, whether subtle or not, 
to, uh, you know, between looking for an image in a photo library and applying uh, deep learning based image recognition to medical imaging. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, whether it's how you got started or maybe some of the hurdles that you've been facing along the way applying this tech specifically to healthcare? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, medical imaging AI and medical images in general are actually quite different from real images as we as we learned when we started out. So most um, deep learning or most most convolutional neural net architectures are optimized for images that are 256 pixels by 256 pixels. Right? That's how all these architectures are, are designed um, right. for real images. But medical images can be five to ten times larger, right? And and not only can they be larger, they're also three-dimensional. So a, a CT scan or an, or an MRI is a series of slices that creates a three-dimensional representation of the human body. So there are not too many off-the-shelf architectures that tackle those sorts of problems. Also, quite frequently, some of the some of the things that we're looking for in the images are really, really quite tiny. Say we're trying to look for a fracture on a CT scan of the brain. There's only about you know one in every, let's say if there's one only one in every ten thousand pixels is a pixel that contains the fracture. So that's not some that's not a challenge that people typically solve on real images. So those are some of the ways that the images are different. But it's also much harder to get real-world training data when you're trying to train neural networks for medical images, right? So those are the challenges on the images themselves, and those are sort of technical challenges. That's pretty much what we do um, as a business, so these technical (laughs) challenges, that's, that's a lot of what we do. But it doesn't really stop there, right? Because one of the key differences between developing AI for healthcare and developing it for consumer applications is that healthcare AI is sort of high stakes, high risk. Sure. It's not like recommending a music track or like giving your voice assistant um, a, a request. You With healthcare AI, you really have to get it right the yeah. first time you try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you're looking, for instance, for a tumor um, on a scan or a bleed, you really have to make sure that you pick every abnormality that is on the scan. And you also have to make sure that you don't pick abnormalities that are not on the scan. So no false alarms, no false positives. Two questions based on what you've said so far. One is... Um, going back to the lack of training data. And I'm wondering how you solved that problem, if you were able to to gather real-world training data or create your own or how you went about that. And then the second part of it relates to you know the high stakes, no room for errors. Are there specific techniques that you used or use that weed out the false positives and, and heighten your accuracy that might be a little different from what's used in, in consumer applications of AI? Yeah, actually, the first point you made is is great, is that it's all about the training data, really. So quite early on, we realized that if we want to develop accurate AI that works, not only is very sensitive and very specific, but it's also important that the AI works on images of people from all kinds of ethnicities, say right. from all types of X-ray scanners, uh, from all types of CD scanners. You don't want it to work only on data from one institution and not from the other. So we focus quite a lot early on on gathering training data. So we did these research collaborations with universities, with hospitals across the world, um, really to be able to get data in an ethical and a de-identified manner. So mm-hmm. and we also realized that beyond a point, you can play all you like with the algorithms. You can fiddle with the algorithms. You can have the most fancy architectures. But at, at some point, it really becomes about the quality, the quantity, and the diversity of the training data. So we focused yeah. on that quite a lot uh, early on. And then also, we also have to really 
test every time we deploy, we've got to be constantly mm. monitoring accuracy and performance for every new deployment we have. And so you mentioned that you're, you uh, just received FDA um, authorization in the U.S. Congratulations on that. And also that you're deployed currently, and I think you said uh, more than two dozen countries. Did Cure start out working specifically in the Indian healthcare market? I think some of our first deployments were India and Southeast Asia, okay. and that's because some of the that's that's also where people saw the first value of AI. So let me give you an example of some of our first deployments and how how they work and how people still use it today. Great. So let's talk about um, tuberculosis, right? TB. So in the Western world, tuberculosis, TB is still seen is is today seen as a disease of the past century, but in many parts of the world, it's really quite highly prevalent. In fact, TB is the largest infectious disease killer globally today. It kills more people than any other infectious disease. And it's it's quite a strong priority for governments, for public health organizations um, around the world to be able to diagnose uh, TB early and to treat it. And it just so happens that the areas that have a lot of TB are the same areas that don't have a lot of highly trained healthcare professionals. Okay. And one of the reasons that we can't treat TB very well and that we can't control it is that it's frequently diagnosed too late. Mm. So here's how, how it typically works is, you know, you have an x-ray machine somewhere that's, you know, half a day's travel from the people who, from, from somebody who might have TB. And so when that person comes there to that center to get a diagnosis, to get that x-ray, if they don't get a diagnosis that very same day, they might return home and they might never come back to that center again. So that's, right. that's how the right. diagnosis gets delayed. But now with AI, what we're able to do is, or what the doctors at the facility are able to do, um, is they have the confidence to give them a diagnosis uh, right away. So if, if they see on the x-ray or if the AI spots signs of TB on the x-ray, they can have a confirmatory molecular test right away and even start treatment that same day. So We've been doing this a lot um, across India, across some parts of Southeast Asia where TB is highly prevalent. And we've been able to show um, with our partners over the last few years that by using AI, doctors have been able to, one, they've been able to reduce the time it takes to diagnose TB. They've been able to diagnose more patients. They've even been able to save costs on um, sort of unnecessary molecular testing. And since after we've we worked on this for a couple of years, um, last year in December, the WHO, the World Health Organization, put out guidelines, actually put out an official endorsement saying that, um, you know, you should probably use AI for to help diagnose TB in areas where you don't have t sufficiently trained healthcare professionals. I believe actually that's the first time or one of the first times that AI has actually been endorsed by a clinical body or or a set of or there've been a set of regulatory guidelines to use AI for um, diagnosing a disease. So that happened with TB. And quite a large part of our deployments are for infectious diseases, TB, in low and middle income countries like India. Well, that's fantastic. The WHO endorsement, obviously, um, no small feat. And, you know, I think we can all relate wherever listeners are listening from to that notion of when something's right in front of you, you're you're much more motivated to deal with it. And then when it fades from your immediate purview, um, for whatever reason, and in this case, you know, you're at the treatment center, you don't have a diagnosis yet, and you need to leave and go home. Even, even for somebody who, you know, the it's a 10-minute drive away, you still have that mental out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing. But, you know, for someone who has to travel half a day and it's a, a really 
big disruption in your life to go to the center to get your diagnosis, I can only imagine, you know, how powerful it is to be able to get those those results right away so you can begin treatment. Um, there's also another example. So I think this is one end of the spectrum. There's TB um, in places where you have not enough access to healthcare. But I can also give you an example of how we've deployed at completely the other end of the spectrum in a highly developed and very well-funded healthcare systems. So in in these kinds of settings, there is a phenomenon called teleradiology, which is is picking up now um, and which which has been around for a long time. It basically means that the highly qualified doctors that read these medical images, they don't have to be in the hospital at all. Um, They don't have to be in the same hospital where where the patient is and where the images are taken. So they quite frequently read these remotely in a different state, in a different part of the country. And all that makes perfect sense. And it's a great use of resources, technology. It's super efficient um, for these healthcare systems. But the flip side to that is that these teleradiology firms have huge volumes of CT scans, MRI scans that they need to read every night and that they need to allocate to their readers all over the country, right? right? So you have this giant server that has is getting 10,000 or 20,000 scans every night and they don't know which ones to read first. Mm. So how how do you know then how do you know which scan has a critical brain hemorrhage and needs to be read right away like really right away? It might be at the bottom of the list, it might be at the top of the list. But, right. And that's how they use AI. They use AI to prioritize the scan with a bleed so that that one can really be read first and it can be used for diagnosis immediately. So the AI sort of operates behind the scenes looking for a bleed in every scan that comes through in a real-time manner. So we've been able to show with some teleradiology partners that we can reduce times So typically before the AI, it would take 67 minutes before a radiologist would open the scan. And now their critical scans are opened in two to three minutes before the scan is read. Oh, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that's a 97% reduction in time before the patient gets treated. And for for patients with bleeds, with strokes and things like that, that that time is really valuable. Absolutely. So it's quite fascinating to me how we're able to use AI at you know, at, at, at very, very different ends of the healthcare spectrum. So that's that's quite motivating for me. Have you found a difference or just anything that, that kind of jumps out at you that the audience might be interested in? When, um, as you were talking about that, I was thinking both about, you know, you were saying working on, on both ends of the spectrum in, in developed and less developed countries and healthcare systems. But then also, obviously, you're working internationally. And I'm wondering... Um, I don't know, I'm wondering if there are any any interesting stories or challenges you had to face, you know, working in in one system versus another, and whether it's technical or kind of the um, the healthcare system's uh, willingness to to engage with somebody saying, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I've built AI that can really help your doctors out, really help your administrative systems out, and so on. I, we've, we've worked with a lot of different healthcare systems and we've tried out a lot of different scenarios. There's a couple of learnings we have. One is that since we started out in India, we learned very early on that we had to build systems that, you know, maybe would work without with a very patchy internet connection, mm. would work on poor quality CT scans. Even if the original image wasn't that great, we'd have to make sure that the AI worked on it. We'd have to develop AI that worked with a really small set of resources, one that wasn't, you know, too power hungry or didn't want, didn't need a very expensive GPU. Right. So we had to do a lot of stuff like that. And that, that quite, that really helped us uh, build a solid engineering team. And then one more thing that we realized is that some of the greatest value and, you know, in terms of people that are willing to pay for having AI look at their scans. So the places that we were able to add the greatest value were quite often the settings 
where they didn't have enough doctors, they didn't have enough healthcare professionals. There was little, very little point in trying to deploy AI at a fancy academic hospital. Right. So we found that the places that people found value were places where they didn't have enough healthcare, where they didn't have enough uh, trained professionals. So that's where they were really, they really welcomed the AI. Right, which which makes sense and is also great to hear because that's where they they need the assistance the most. A large part of that is low and middle income countries, but it doesn't, it's not always the case. You know, even sure. within the very well-resourced healthcare systems, you always have pockets that are overburdened <laughs> where they don't have enough resources, uh, things like that. I, I, I'm not going to name any specifics, but I can think of one very uh, developed, wealthy country that, that has some pockets of need in its healthcare system. And I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. This is kind of a basic question, but I'm wondering how the system works when... Uh, let's say in the case where your technology is actually reading and interpreting the scans, on the other end, the the doctor, the the healthcare worker, are they receiving the full scan with you know a recommendation or sort of annotated notes from your system, or can it work uh, in an area where you know there's low tech and patchy internet, like you said? Can it work where um, maybe you know the healthcare provider just gets a, a notification? that says, you know, hey, these are the results of this particular scan? Yeah, we've had to build things that work in, in all these ways. And so typically what happens is you get the, the X-ray or the CD scan or the MRI, you get that, uh, the original X-ray with some labels on top of it so that you can see where the AI thought something was wrong. That's what the healthcare, healthcare worker sees. But we've also deployed in such a way that we send a notification to somebody's mobile phone through a telegram message that says, look, here, there's, there's right. a critical scan. You might want to prioritize that one first. So we've had to deploy both these ways. And of course, there's regulatory con- um, considerations where, you know, different countries allow different um, ways of deploying. Now, that, that's so important that it be flexible to, you know, not only have the information and have the great analysis, but to deliver it in a way that's going to work uh, for who's on the other end. Our guest today is Dr. Pooja Rao. Dr. Rao is co-founder and the head of R&D at Cure.ai, a Mumbai, India-based company that is uh, harnessing the power of deep learning to assist in medical diagnostics, uh, reading scans, interpreting scans, prioritizing scans. Uh, it's, it's great work and it's having an impact as as Dr. Rao was discussing, uh, in places all around the world. Um, Pooja, I want to switch gears for a minute, if we can, and ask you about your background and, and how you came to co-found this company. In uh, I think in the intro at the top, I called you um, a doctor, a data scientist, and an entrepreneur. So I, I've got to ask, which came first? And uh, when you were young, did you imagine that one day you would be um, a doctor, a data scientist, and an entrepreneur? Um. <laughs> I, I don't know if I had all of that. Not um, quite laid out like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, not exactly like that. But, um, you know, when I was training or when I was studying medicine, I've always thought really that the point of studying medicine was to be able to improve it. Mm. Um, so to develop new therapies, new technology that could change or improve the way that we do healthcare. So new medicine, new diagnostics, new technology. So after I graduated, I only practiced for a couple of months before I started um, a neuroscience PhD. Okay. This was about maybe 10 or so years ago in a time where there were just starting to be large amounts of data available for research. Mm. So in my case, this was genomics data. And during the PhD, it sort of dawned on me that there's no way to do research at scale if you 
don't know how to code and automate things. Yes. So, or, or even better, if you can, you know, once you've automated things, you can allow machines to discover patterns in your data and do your research for right. you, right? So that's otherwise known as machine learning. And so, so then I started, I learned to code mostly from online courses, um, self-taught, things like that. And then I started applying these machine learning algorithms to healthcare data. My PhD ended up being about how to use genomic data to predict the onset of Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Mm. And it just sort of escalated from there. I worked in bioinformatics, healthcare machine learning, and so on, until about five years ago when I had the opportunity to move back to India, to Mumbai, where Cure is based, to help start up this venture that would use deep learning for medical imaging. Where did you do your studying? Because you mentioned moving back to India. Oh, I, I did a neuroscience PhD at the Max Planck Institute in Göttingen, Germany. And then I worked for a couple of years at startup small companies in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, okay. When I moved back to Mumbai, uh, Cure was exciting to start up because it felt like something that wasn't solving a first world problem. Right. And healthcare AI is quite sort of common. It's all the rage today. A lot of people do it. But back then when we started out, I think we were one of the first sets of people to systematically apply deep learning algorithms to large amounts of medical data, things like that. So that's really how the Cure um, story started out. And you said that was about five years ago in 2016? 2016 is when we started. Did you have funding? Were you uh, starting from scratch, building things, you know, on, on a, a shoestring budget, as they say? How, how did the company kind of get itself established and start growing? And uh, how big is the team now? So when we started out, we were funded. We were lucky enough to be funded within a larger company called Fractal Analytics. So the founder of that company put, put, put aside some money to say, um, look, let's incubate something. Let's do something nice with healthcare. So um, it wasn't bootstrapped. Right. The first couple of years, we had a lot of freedom to do all the R&D we wanted. That's great. So for the first couple of years, we had KPI, KPIs or OKRs around publishing research papers, really taking the time to do our research. Later um, in 2020, we raised more funding from Sequoia Capital, a couple of other investors, things like that. And so when we started out, we were maybe a team of two. We were about two, four or five people. Then we, so the first set of people were all data scientists. And then we gradually grew to engineering, marketing, um, regulatory, and so on. So today we're about 60 people. And not that the work that you're doing right now, as you've described, uh, that that certainly is <laughs> plenty, I would imagine, from a challenge standpoint, and certainly from an impact standpoint, plenty to, to sustain a company for the foreseeable future. But are there new things that Cure is working on either now or, or in the near term horizon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so the obvious one is that we want to do more modalities, more parts of the body, more, um, you know, extra ultrasound, things like that. But I think even more interesting, what we want to do um, and what we're working towards now is bringing AI really to be on the medical device itself, to be on the X-ray, the CT scanner, the ultrasound or the MRI. It's a bit like this trend we have about getting AI on the edge, but yes. here we want to get it on the medical device. Right. And what that means with that, what we'll be able to do is not only, you know, process the image after it's been taken, but also potentially allow the person who's acquiring the image 
potentially guide them to acquire a better image, right? Mm -hmm. Think about a CT scanner or an MRI that is so smart that it's able to, while it's taking the MRI, notice that, okay, look, this is an area that might need more interest. This is probably where there's something that's abnormal. Let's zoom in here. Let's focus here. Let's take a couple of extra shots. Right, right. And that only really will happen when the AI melds with the scanner, with the medical device itself. So that's something that we are currently um, working on and quite excited about. And so is that a hardware problem? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's quite a different problem from the yeah. one that we've been solving. And it takes a lot of cooperation and partnerships to do it. But I think it, it would be exciting um, when it's solved. That's fantastic. And so putting you on the spot here for a minute and, and asking you to predict the future, we're not going to hold you to it. But where do you see this headed? You mentioned you know, being able to embed the AI on the medical uh, imaging device itself to guide the physician, the practitioner as they're doing the scans. Where else do you see this all headed over the next, whether it's two years, three years, five years, 10 years? Um, as you were talking, I was imagining, you know, a, a smartphone where I could point the camera at myself and scan my body. And that's probably a little bit far flung. <laughs> but this idea of AI in healthcare broadly or even specifically to um, imaging and, um, you know, being able to diagnose and catch uh, diseases and ailments while there's still time to treat them. Where do you see this headed uh, in the near term? Um, so the way I think about it is like how we have today um, Google Maps or navigation systems for your car. So nobody would ever really think of driving without that assistance today, right? It works <laughs> right. well. Uh, it's easily available. Uh, it's affordable to anybody who is driving. And it also takes a lot of cognitive load off the person driving the car, right? Sometimes too much so in my own case, but that's another story. <laughs> yes. So I think we're going to see something like that happening for medical images. So right. that the, all the collective know-how that we have at diagnosing medical images is easily accessible to anybody who wants to use it. And then it's automatically applied to all medical images as soon as they come out of their X-ray scanners, their machines, their MRI scanners, that the image is of perfect quality and it comes pre-labeled. So I really look forward to a scenario where nobody dreams of diagnosing medical images without AI assistance and that it really becomes the standard of care. And that uh, in the future, doctors, you know, they would be thinking to themselves, I can't believe we used to spend all that time in dark rooms um, analyzing these little <laughs> dots um, on grayscale images. Uh, so, and, and I'm so glad that somebody automated that part of my job. It feels like a time to say this. We've done a few uh, podcasts in the past few years with different companies or health organizations using AI. Uh, one that jumps to mind was um, a palliative care team at Stanford, I believe it was, who... Uh, similar to how you were talking about using AI to kind of surface the scans that need prioritized attention. Uh, they were talking about using algorithms to help them kind of triage and prioritize, you know, which patients, which cases need more immediate attention than others. And it seems like it's a good time to, to mention that it doesn't sound like you're talking about replacing doctors, replacing humans, but rather this is Another example of AI, the technology partnering with the human, and in this case, uh, it's guiding them to do better diagnostics, but also, as you just mentioned, freeing up time that they could better spend on other important parts of their jobs. Yeah, that is certainly how we see it um, for now, but only time will tell, really. <laughs> Fair enough. For folks who want to find out more about what you're doing, obviously the name of the company alludes to a website, cure.ai. Is that the best place to go? And are there other places uh, online where, where folks can learn more? Yeah, that's cure.ai or we have a blog, which is at blog.cure.ai. 
perfect. Well, Dr. Rao, thank you so much. This is incredible work you and your team are doing. And, um, you know, the, your, your passion for it comes through in your voice. And I think what you said about um, wanting to go into medicine so that you can improve the state of the art is something that, frankly, I wasn't expecting you to say. I, people, you say, oh, I went into medicine because I wanted to help people, which clearly you do. But, but that additional layer of wanting to improve the way we help people, I think really speaks to, you know, why you've had the success you had so far and uh, no doubt are, are headed to do more things to change the industry for the better. So thank you to you and your team for all you're doing. Thank you, Noah. And thanks for inviting me. It was um, great speaking with you.